by Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called Morenevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Good morning, everyone. Okay, we have uh, a handout for today. Please take one and pass it around. Please take one and pass it around. If anyone, uh, does anyone need a copy of the first chapter? Here, let's pass this around if anyone needs, if anyone still needs a copy. That's just, that's just the, the text of the first chapter. Okay, so we are now in the middle of the, the first chapter, first essay, chapter one of section one of the Morena Vuchim. And we saw the first paragraph. Um, and the first paragraph essentially told us, and this, by the way, if you wanted to get your bearings, it's on page 21 in the Pines edition. Okay, so. Um, the Rambam had told us that he was going to define for us two words that appear at the very beginning of the Torah, tselem and demut, uh, image and likeness, which is the way that the Torah describes the way God created man. God created man in his tselem and in his demut. And of course, this immediately raises flags for anyone who philosophically speculates about God, because God has no physical form. That God is non-corporeal. It's one of the most essential, um, as we mentioned, it is necessary to affirm a non-physical God in order to accept the unity of God. And for the Rambam, the unity of God is the most uh, important principle that one can affirm about the Almighty. That sort of is definitional to God's essence. And so the question then, for, therefore, is what does the Torah mean when it, when it says that God created man in his image? And in the course of explaining this, we're now in the second paragraph at the bottom of the page. The Rambam first has to introduce us to a third word to tell us what image is not. And there's a third word that appears throughout Tanakh, which is the word to'ar. And there the Rambam is going to tell us that the word to'ar refers to someone's physical appearance. And we never find in describing Hashem that God has a to'ar, because that would, that would completely go against the whole principle that God is non-physical, that God is incorporeal. So therefore, he starts off by saying, I say that in the Hebrew language, the proper term designating the form is well known among the multitude, namely that form which is the shape and configuration of a thing which is to'ar. So he gives us an example. That scripture says that Yosef That Yosef, we know that famous story about the wife of Potiphar. That when he was a slave in Potiphar's house, the Torah describes Yosef as having beautiful toar 
and beautiful mar'eh. And this, this is a description of what he looks like, of the way he presents himself physically to the wife of Potiphar. Um, and the, the, um, uh, the, the Rambam gives other uh, examples from, um, uh, from, um, from, from, other, from other scriptures. What form is he of? And uh, this is a, a reference uh, to Gidon. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a reference to Shaul, because this is a, a pasuk from the first book of Shmuel. And in that, in that story, maybe some of you remember that story, Shaul attends a seance with a necromanceress. And because he's desperate, he needs to find out whether he should go to war with the Philistines or not. And Shaul, uh, Shmuel, the prophet, has already passed away. So he goes to a necromanceress, which is against the Torah, but he's a desperate man. And he asks her to conjure up the soul of Shmuel Hanavi. And when she does so, she sees an old man wrapped in a cloak. And he asks her, what does he look like? And she tells him, this is what he looks like. And he says, oh, now I know that that's Shmuel the prophet. So there the word toar is used to describe the, the image of an old man wrapped in a cloak. Another example as the toar of the children of a king describing the majestic look that the leader, the shofet Gidon, had to the enemies of the Jewish people. Uh, and therefore, he says, the term also is applied to an artificial form. Um, when, you know, uh, it, when we say an artificial form, what does the Rambam mean? Some translate it a little bit differently, but, the, but, but it means in, uh, in Hebrew, the Ibn Tibon Hebrew says, which I guess I would, I would explain not so much as an artificial form, but as a functional form. Um, because when you want to say that something functionally has a shape, that you need to be able to describe its features, you describe its shape, you describe the way that it presents itself physically, you use the word toar. And therefore, he says he marks its form with a line and marks its form with a compass. So you see that you need to use an instrument of gauging shapes and sizes, right? And that shows you that toar is a, is a gauge of shape and size. By the way, you know, what is the difference? This is parenthetical to what the Rambam writes. But you know that many times we find, especially we, it says by Rachel and it says by Yosef, that you have Toar and you have Mar'eh in the sheet that I handed out. And by the way, these handouts, uh, for those of you who are, um, who are watching online, if you ever want to get a copy of anything that we hand out in the shear, uh, you're always welcome to send me a message on Facebook and I'll be able to... Uh, to text it over to you in a PDF or a, or a JPEG form. And so the, um, if you wanted to just know the difference between Toar and Mar'eh, the, um, the, we, have, we present you with two opinions. One is Rashi and one is the Ibn Ezra. Rashi says, and you have it here in the, in the first section, Toar Hutsurata Partsuf, that the word Toar refers to the shape of a person's face or the, the, uh, the, the um, description of how a person's face is shaped. Lashon yitahareu bisered. As the Rambam just quoted the Pasuk in Yeshaya, measuring something with a compass. So therefore, when it, you say that a person has a beautiful toar, you're saying that they have a beautifully shaped face, 
their eyes, their nose, their lips. That's what Toar refers to. Everything is beautifully sh- shaped. Mar'eh, his huziv klos, radiance that they emit, which is sort of like um, just taking the, the, the gansapunim, right, and saying, wow, this person radiates a certain kind of charisma or charm. What? Aura. An aura, perhaps, yeah. So that's the way Rashi explains the difference between toar and mar'eh. Toar is the shape, and mar'eh, or some, the, the, the shine of their face. And the Ibn Ezra says, Yifat, Yifas toar, toar kol ever umare hakol tov o al ha'oyen. Um, and the Ibn Ezra says uh, a similar idea, toar kol ever, that toar refers to each individual feature, the eyes, the nose, the lips, and umare hakoltov, um, and he says Myra refers to the totality of the person's punim, or the way that they present themselves is beautiful to look at. So a person you can analyze a person's toe, say you know, oh that person has a Renaissance face, or a person has a classic beauty, right? And then you could say the Myra, the totality of the way that they present themselves, is a be- something beautiful to look at. Anyway, but the Rambam is really only concerning himself with the word toar because he wants to set up a contrast between the word toar and the two words that are used in the Torah to describe man being made in God's image. Toar refers to a functional appearance. That's what the Rambam calls it, really a physical presentation. Okay, um, Those terms are never applied to the deity, may he be exalted. Far and remote may this thought be from us. The term image which is what, we, what he calls, which is in the Hebrew tselem, is applied to the natural form. Now, what do we mean by the natural form? It's referring to essential form. Um, and by the way, the word form many times is used in the Aristotelian sense. We had mentioned way back in the introduction when we were first introducing this material that the Rambam is very much an Aristotelian in his thought. In Aristotelian science, all that exists in the world can be divided into form and matter. Remember we talked about the chair. The chair has the form of a chair, which means that it has a, um, an intellectual uh, investiture in the chair of chairness or chair-likeness. And then it has matter, which is the physical material that went into uh, taking that idea of chairness and putting it into a physical, into a physical reality. That's a concept that's a little bit foreign to us, but if you study just a, a, a small amount of Aristotelian science, you understand that that's how Aristotle breaks down into a dichotomy the entire physical world, form and matter. So in one sense, the Rambam is using this word selim to describe man's form. It's devoid of physicality, selim in its truest sense, but it describes the most essential quality of what it means to be a human being which is not to be physical, but rather something deeper. The most essential quality of a human being, such that if you took away that quality, the person would no longer be human, <coughs> is something that is, has nothing to do with the physical aspect of man. What does it have to do with? Essence. Well, what is that essential quality within man? That's what we're asking. What is it that makes the human uniquely human? Well, choice, which is sort of an extension of the, the larger category, which is intellect. Soul. Intellect. 
Well, soul is another way of describing intellect if you're an Aristotelian. But you're right. It is the intellect. It is the ability to think and to be self-aware and to be analytical about existence. No other creature in the world is endowed with that level of intellect. And so the thing that makes a human being uniquely human is their mind. It has nothing to do with their being physical because we share physicality with the rest of the physical world, with animals, with inanimate objects, with plant life, and so forth. So therefore, when the Torah says that God created man in his tselem, in his form, it does not mean anything having to do with man's physical nature, but rather that which makes man uniquely human. Um, I mean, and that's what he means by natural form, the thing that is essential to being human. I mean to the notion and virtue of which a thing is constituted as a substance and becomes what it is. It is the true reality of the thing insofar as the latter is that particular being. In man, that notion is that from which human apprehension derives. So I'm, I've basically simplified the language. Basically, what, is, what does he mean by human apprehension? The ability for a human being to think, the human intellect, is the thing that makes the human being uniquely human. It is on account of this intellectual apprehension that it is said of man, in the image of God, he created, created he him. Right? That God created man in his image. In his image. And, um, um, and it also says, we'll get to that in just a minute. For this reason also it is said, thou has contempt for their image. Now this Pasuk, which is a Pasuk from Tehillim, is a reference to, um, um, is, is a reference to the wicked of the world. And what David HaMelech is referring to is that God you have great contempt for the wicked, those who commit sins. For contempt has for its object the soul, which is the specific form, not the shape and configuration of the parts of the body. And as, as Kreskis points out, what this means is that for, for God to say that I have contempt for your tselem, what does that mean? It can't mean that God says I have contempt for your big nose, I have contempt for your physical appearance, God doesn't have contempt for the way people look. God has contempt for their essence, for the thing that makes them essentially them. And that is the, their, free, their free choice, their ability to think. And a person who is sinful has used his intellect in sinful ways. And that is what God has contempt for. So this is another example of how tselem is used to describe the essential quality of the human being. Um, I assert also that the reason why idols are called tselamim now here's an interesting question. Why is it that another word for statues that are created in the form of man is called the tselem? Now you could challenge the Rambam and say, oh, so you see the word tselem means the physical appearance of something, right? But he says no. In the fact that what was sought in them was the notion that was deemed to subsist in them and not their shape and configuration. So the Rambam's answer, he's gonna a little, he's gonna, he's gonna hedge his bets on this, on this challenge. Because the word selim, when it describes an idol, is a little bit problematic. So therefore, the Rambam writes, well, one answer as to why an idol is called a selim is not because you're trying to replicate the physical appearance of a human being when you create a statue of Venus or of Apollo and so forth. 
but you're trying to capture the essential quality of the human being and, and, trans, and impart it into an inanimate statue that's made of stone or, or wood. That's what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to take human qualities and imbue them within an inanimate statue when you create an idol. So therefore, the word sela means an image of a human being that is superhuman but represents one of my gods. But it's not, I don't call it a selim because it looks physically like a human being, but rather I want it to act with superhuman qualities that, are, that make it similar to some kind of deity. I assert similarly with regard to the scriptural expression, images of your emirads. Does anyone know what an emirad is? I didn't know what an emirad was, but in the ancient world, an emirad is, a, is, the, is the term that is used for what we now call a hemorrhoid. Or, as some scholars say, it's a reference to a tumor in general, a bodily tumor. Now, what, what, what do hemorrhoids have to do, I don't mean to make anyone squirm here, but what do hemorrhoids have to do with a, a passage that appears in Tanakh? So there's a famous story at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel that talks about the ark that was taken by the Philistines was captured. Okay, and what happened was a God presented the Philistines with a great plague. Uh, and as a result, they needed to know what to do. So the wise men, men told them that um, we are all getting plagued by hemorrhoids or tumors. What should we do as a way of, we've obviously made the God of the Hebrews very upset by taking his ark. So what we have to do is we have to return the ark Plus, we have to present the God of Israel with golden hemorrhoids. In other words, sculptures in the shape of hemorrhoids or tumors, uh, five of each, and five golden flies, because also part of the pestilence that they had accumulated was uh, a swarm of, of flies. And in order to get these uh, plagues away from us, we have to take those very things that are plaguing us, make golden images of them, and present it to the Israelites and give them back the ark, and then the plague will be stayed. So there the word tzalamim is used as well, the image of emirads, of hemorrhoids. So, for, so the question therefore is, there it's clearly, there's no essential feature of a hemorrhoid <laughs> other than its morphology, right, other than its shape. So how can the word selim be referring to anything other than the physical shape? So this is a challenge to the Rambam's whole premise that the word selim does not mean physical shape. So he says, for what was intended by them was the notion of warding off the harm caused by the emirads and not the shape of the emirads. So there he says, oh, the essential nature of a hemorrhoid is to cause you a lot of pain. And that's what they were saying. In other words, if we want to get the pain of the selim of the hemorrhoid is, the, is its pain that it presents, and if we want to get rid of it, we have to take something that will sort of represent the removal of that pain from us, transfer that into the gold statuette, statuette of the hemorrhoids, and present it to the Israelites. The Rambam is not so happy with that answer, so I'm going to tell you what he says now. I'll, I won't read the whole thing. He says, alternatively, I could give you a second answer. Here, uniquely in Sefer Shmuel, the word selim does mean the physical shape of hemorrhoids because that was the word selim as it's used in the vernacular. In the truest sense of the word selim, it times 
if people are conversing and they use the word selim, they'll use it in a, in a, as a borrowed term. But they don't really mean selim in the deeper way that we mean it when we describe God's, God, uh, God making man in his image, but rather in the vernacular, the way people refer to it on the street. And so just skip to the last few lines. That which was meant in the scriptural dictum, let us make man in our image, was the specific form which is intellectual apprehension, not the shape and configuration of man. We have explained to you, therefore, now that we've given you this whole presentation, we've explained to you the difference between selim and, and to'ar, and have explained the meaning of the word selim, the, the, the real meaning of the word selim. So to'ar, just to conclude, refers to the physical form, the way that something physically presents itself to you. Tselem is referring to something's essential nature. And therefore, as now there's only one more word that we have to deal with, which is the word demus, demut. It is a noun derived from the verb dome. So what does dome mean? To be dome to something or damo means to resemble it, to be like it. And there too, the Torah says, bidmus elokim asa oso. So what does that mean? So the Rambam says that it too signifies likeness in respect of a notion. For the scriptural dictum, and I'm going to show you basically that when you say that something is domet to something else, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be physically akin to that thing, but it has to have a certain feature and characteristic which makes it very similar to that other thing. Not necessarily physical, though. Okay? So therefore, here's some examples. I am like a pelican in the wilderness. By the way, other translations, the word is ka'at, is the word, the bird that is being described in David HaMelech's Tehillim. What is the word ka'at? Some translate it as an owl. Some translate it as pelican, but it's a certain kind of desert bird. And what David HaMelech is saying, and I have the, the, the section from the Kapitel Kuf Beis, Tehillim 102. It says, you know, basically King David is really upset. He says, do not hide your face from me in my time of trouble, for my days have vanished like smoke and my bones are charred like a hearth. My body is stricken and withered like grass, too wasted to eat my food. On account of my vehement groaning, my bones show through my skin. David is really a very upset, very despondent person, fasting and very upset. He can't even eat. And then he says, I am like a great owl or a great pelican in the wilderness uh, among the ruins. So what is he describing? Is he saying that I look like a pelican? Of course not. That's not what David HaMelech means. But rather what he means to say is, it's not... It doesn't mean that regard to its wings and feathers, but that his sadness was like that of a bird. If you can imagine a sad pelican or a sad owl, I don't know why the sadness is associated with that kind of bird, but an owl maybe I could understand because he goes, you know, (laughs) and maybe that's the hooting of an owl represents his sadness. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, In the same way in the verse, nor was any tree in the garden of God like unto it in beauty, which is a pasuk, in Sefer Yecheskel, which is descriptive of the beautiful country of Ashur, of Assyria, before God decided to strike it as a punishment. It was a beautiful country. And it says, was any, there was no tree in the garden of God like unto it in beauty. The likeness is respect to the notion of beauty, not to the exact physical features of every tree. 
Similarly, the verses, their venom is in the likeness of the venom of a serpent, and his likeness is that of a lion that is eager to tear in pieces. Page 23. All of these which use the word demut or domeh in the Pasuk, all of them refer to a likeness in respect of a certain feature and not with respect to a shape and a configuration. In the same way it is said, the likeness of the throne, the likeness of a throne, the likeness referred to being in respect of elevation and sublimity, not in respect of a throne's square shape, its solidity and the length of its legs, as poor people or wretched people think, meaning lowly people who don't have really an intellectual acumen will think that if the Torah says that something is like a throne, it means it's physically like a throne, that it has four legs. Of course not. That's not what the Tanakh is referring to. It means it's majestic, it's elevated, it's exalted. A similar explanation should also be applied to the expression, the likeness of all creatures, of, of the living creatures. Now, and, and this is a... Um, and this is a Pasuk in Yecheskel as well. So man possesses in his proprium, though it's a fancy word for there's a property within man that is something in him that is very strange as it is not found in anything else that exists under the sphere of the moon. Now what the Rambam is writing under the sphere of the moon is a very strange way of saying anything that exists in the physical world. Why the Rambam uses this to describe things that exist in our physical world is once again because he is an Aristotelian and he subscribes to a, uh, a, a geocentric conception of the universe where the earth is in the center and it is bounded by spheres, by crystalline uh, clear spheres that surround our planet. And the laws of physics apply to everything that's in the, within the innermost sphere which contains the orbit of the moon. The moon is embedded in the innermost sphere. We're not going to get into that right now, but that's the reason why he calls this uh, the physical nature of things that are within the physical world as we know it, because the laws of physics are subsumed under the innermost sphere of the moon, what we call the, what we call the moon sphere. We'll get into that ast astronomical issue a little bit later on. Yes? Yes, it's a method of emanation from the divinity, the prime mover, all the way out there in the, in the outside, the outermost sphere, through a series of concentric spheres, God presents his emanation to us. A topic that we'll, I guarantee you we will get into later on. Okay, um, it, namely, so what is this unique feature within man that exists only within man out of all of the things that exist within the physical world as we know it? Namely, intellectual apprehension, the, abil the ability to, to cognize, the ability to have intellect. In the exercise of this, no sense, no part of the body, none of the extremities are used. And therefore, this apprehension was likened unto the apprehension of the deity, which does not require an instrument. So God does not have any physical tool to have intellect, nor does man. So therefore, when the Torah says that God created man in his image, it means that which makes man uniquely human is his tzelem, which is his intellect. And how is he akin or similar to God with that very same intellect? So therefore, tzelem and demut are both a reference to the fact that man has intellect. The word tzelem means that intellect is that which makes man uniquely human. 
And demut means that which makes man most resemblant to God with, his, with that very same intellect. Now, why, does it, why is it necessary for the Torah to say that man is domet to Hashem? So the Rambam just adds one last caveat, and that is that to be domet to something means to be like it, but not exactly it. And the reason is, is because God's intellect is not man's intellect, or man's intellect is not God's intellect. And the Navi actually says it's, My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Yes, you have an intellect. It is the closest thing that you can get to being a deity yourself. But it is only akin, it is only dome to my intellect, it is not my intellect itself. Although in reality it is not like the latter apprehension, but only appears so to the first stirrings of the opinion. When you first look at man's intellect, you say, oh, how godly man is, right? But it's only, it's only a demut, it's only a similar, akin to God's intellect. It was because of this something, I mean, because of the divine intellect conjoined with man, that it is said of the latter that he is in the image of God and in his likeness, but not that God may he be exalted as a body and possesses a shape. So therefore, I have succeeded, sort of like QED, I have succeeded in dispelling the notion that when the Torah says that God made man in his image, that this ascribes any level of physical attribute to the Rebbeinu Shalom himself. Just because man has physical uh, features does not mean that God does. Because when the Torah says that God made man in his image, it refers to the, 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 uh, the feature within man that makes him uniquely human, which is not at all physical. And man's, man's intellect is domet to Hashem, but is not exactly the same intellect as God. Okay, that concludes our first our first uh, chapter. Any questions, comments? Yes. So the concept that you brought up last week and concluded with this would be the criticalness of the, of the fact that God is non-corporeal. And we also understand from the Rambam Zikarim that the Torah that we have now is the Torah that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. Yes. And yet from a couple of weeks ago, for instance, we have a pursuit that's, that talks about Moshe Aaron and Nadav and Abil and the Right, right. An image, seeing, seeing an image, seeing imagery of God described in physical terms. Yes. Correct. Well, <clears throat> the fact is, is that we are faced with the text that does describe Hashem in physical terms. And the Rambam is the one who really has to make his case. If we had just the Chumash without any commentary to it, we would be very tempted to say that God has physical form. The Torah says that God took us out of Egypt and and there are people even in the times of the Talmud that take this literally, that God has a physical arm that he can use to pull us out of uh, our, our, our situation. Um, the Rambam is the innovator, not the Chumash. 
right? It's the Rambam who comes several centuries after the Chumash and tells us it is necessary based on philosophical principles that explain God in his as truest essence that he cannot be physical, right? So we, we have to remember, put things in their chronological context. The Chumash comes many, many centuries before the Rambam or any other physical, philosophical speculation about the nature of God. And with just the Chumash, God looks very physical to us and to the rest of the world. But the Rambam says that you're, that's a misreading. And my whole function is to tell you how to correctly read the text. There, there have been, throughout Jewish history, corporealists, people who did believe that God can have some aspect of corporeality, as we mentioned from the Midrash called Shior Koma, which describes God in physical, in physical form. Okay, any other questions? Yes. Do you think that, that Rambam's understanding of human philosophy was actually, you know, he thought of it as, in terms of science, and he's trying to reconcile science with the uh, science. The, the, science the word science. science does not come into existence until the Middle Ages. But you need to do it the way we would view science. That yes, philosophy equals philosophy equals science. Yeah, the the word philosophy in the ancient world in, is contains both metaphysics and physics, as we've mentioned all along. What is physics? It's the description of that which exists in the physical world. That's part of, that's a discipline within, within philosophy. Today, we call physics a branch of science. But in the Rambam's world, physics is a branch of philosophy. So philosophy is, an, is the defining all that is. So it is truth. So yeah. It had to reconcile it with the Torah. Exactly. Now, remember, we're going to get into more of the Rambam's contempt for the Kalamists, who are the apologists for Islam. He does not want to turn himself into an apologist. And so we have to be, he's walking a very, very delicate line. I'm not here to, to, um, to fit a square peg uh, in, into, a, into a circular hole, right? I can't do that. But I'm going to show you quite elegantly that there's no contradiction. And I'm not, in, not using apologetics. We'll get to that. Does God have intellect? Does God have? Yes, that is, that is the essence of God, is, is intellect. God is, God, is, God is pure intellect. Yes, we'll get to that as well. Have a great day.